0: I'm an alcoholic. Amen. A grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to thank the committee for asking me that next year to come up this year. <laughs> and I'd also like to take a little moment just to give a silent prayer for Cindy on because she has to be going through some troubles, you know. So I'd like to do that for a minute. Thank you. Um You know, I feel just as nervous right now as I did when I came to my first AA meeting. My palms are sweaty. (laughs) My stomach's doing (laughs) flip-flops. My sponsor told me to wear dark-colored trousers in case I peed myself. (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay, you know. Serenity in Yosemite sounds really great, and that's what it is, you know, and... uh, for those people that are listening to this on tape, there's 10,000 people out here, <laughs> and I'm sorry you missed it.
1: <laughs>
0: One of my defects fetched characters is alive. <laughs> Still. <laughs> <You know>. um. <laughs> I'm grateful to be here today. I really am, you know. They asked me ten days ago if I'd come up here, and I said yes without any hesitation, because I didn't want to wait till next year and go through all this pain. (laughs) You know, but it's neat. You know, I was born at a real early age, like everybody else. You know, the first thing I can remember happening to me is getting in trouble at age two, because I used to count things. I don't know what you guys did, but I used to count things. You know, and and what I was counting, when I, was, I was counting pictures of my mother and my brother. And it never added up right. There was like eight to one. And I didn't understand that. And what I got in trouble over was I beat up a picture of them that, that they had sitting on their bed, you know, on their headboard in their bedroom. And I got yelled at for that. I didn't understand how come there were so many pictures of my brother and none of me. So I was always looking for acceptance you know from then I thought my mom loved my brother more than me because he's got more pictures <laughs> you know I didn't know my dad was in the service you know that never equated to me you know another day that happened you know my brother was an epileptic and a breech birth and had some brain damage and he was I used to call him retarded and uh, I used to hate him and around age five to age eight, somewhere in around there, I wanted to try to kill him. So I tried that. I peed on his toothbrush. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> Didn't work. I tried to figure all kinds of little nasty things to do to him. You know, we'd be washing dishes together, and I'd hand him the knife with the not, you know, with the with a knife edge, and I'd grab it back out of his hand and cut him. I just didn't like him, you know. He was in between me and my mother. And I didn't, you know, I was, I wanted that acceptance, you know. He got more attention than I did because he was sick, but I didn't realize that. You know. And I was always going for that. My dad was always around, but my dad was always working. You know, he was a workaholic. My mom and dad were both grown up, you know, were, were both brought up by alcoholic parents, and they were the ones that said, I'm never going to be like my parents. And they weren't. They don't drink. You know, but they have they have problems of their own. You know, they acted out. Dad was a workaholic, and I never knew why he wasn't around, you know. But that was because they were paying for a lot of operations, because my brother never had insurance. But I never figured that out, you know. Nobody told me, either. <laughs> you know, all I can remember, my dad always telling me is, don't make waves. I've got enough wave, got enough problems with your brother, and I don't need any waves from you. So I tried not to make waves, as much as I could. <laughs> you know, At age 12, I took my first drink, went to a party at the friend's house, and there, his parents were down in Mexico, so they didn't know we were having a party. And they were gone for a week, and we tore up the house. But I remember that first drink. The first drink was a bottle of Olympia beer, the little stubbies, and they were cold, and uh, my friend's brother bought, bought, bought them. You know. And we just hung out there all the time. My first drink, I got drunk, I threw up. <laughs> I went into a blackout, and I got in trouble. you know And that's how it was for the rest of my drinking. <laughs> I could stop there and there's nothing you know <laughs> I drank. <laughs> you know I went into a blackout, I threw up, I passed out, and I got in trouble. um) You know, From age um, 12 to about 16, I had a paper route. And what I'd do to get alcohol then was I would deliver papers, and if you weren't home I'd go into your house. And I'd go steal your booze. And most people keep their alcohol in the same little place all the time. It's real easy to find, you know. Most people keep it in that little cupboard above the refrigerator. <laughs> You know, it wasn't really ever hard to find. So I learned how to steal real early to get what I wanted. That's how I drank between 12 and 18. And I didn't drink every day, but I drank quite often, you know. At least a couple times a week. I got so lethargic that I didn't even deliver the papers. <laughs> you know? I'd only deliver, it was a free kind of paper and it was a voluntary contribution kind of thing. And I'd only give it to people that contributed, you know, that paid for it. I wouldn't give it to anybody else, and I'd throw the rest of them in the culvert, you know, in the storm, the storm drain. And I used to get caught every winter, because <laughs> it would flood, and they got these gates and it would plug up the gates. And I used to forget to take the name tag off of the bundle of papers. (laughs) So I still, you know, I just always got in trouble. You know, at 16 I went to work for my dad at his gas station. He had to get a couple gas stations and I went to work at his gas station and uh, I learned how to manipulate there. You know, I went there right after school and, uh, as soon as my dad left, I'd go tell the guys, if you don't buy me some beer, I'm going to tell them that you're ripping them off. And that worked. But I really found out that I never had to do that because they were buying beer as soon as he left anyway. <laughs> you know? But I thought I was getting over. I thought I was manipulating. You know? And, and uh, I did that until 18. At 18 years old, I went into the service. You know? And it's sort of nice to speak today on on uh, Veterans Day, you know. Um, I was in the Marine Corps as a door gunner, on as a helicopter door gunner and crew chief. I spent three years over there. Some of the things I never wanted to tell anybody was I liked it there. <laughs> you know? I really liked the Marine Corps when I got there. You know, yesterday was the Marine Corps' birthday. <laughs> And today I'd be really whacked out, you know, but uh, they used to tell me that they started that sucker in the tavern, you know, I used to tell them that if I had any way of doing it, I'd try to keep it there, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I did real good on my first four years in the service, you know, I got promoted to E6 and all that stuff and not too many troubles, you know, I drank a lot, but I was overseas for three years, so they Sort of let that go. They didn't worry about that a lot. You know. And, uh, I didn't get into a lot of trouble there. You know, some of the things that happened over there were a lot of the stuff I drank over. You know. A lot of that stuff was stuff I was never going to tell anybody under extreme torture or death. The stuff I was going to take to the grave with me. You know. One of them was I liked it there. I like the action, I like the anxiety, you know, the adrenaline rush. I like, you know, I started smoking heroin at 19 over there. You could buy it for two bucks, two bucks a pop. You know, then I started shooting heroin over there, and then I'm drinking. You know, I just did everything I could do to stay out of today, to stay mellow, to be bulletproof. I don't know if any of you guys were ever over there, but I was bulletproof. You know, I didn't get shot once. I got shot down seven times, but I didn't get shot. And that was a big deal, you know. Um, I was going into a gun run one night, and I was drunk. And I knew I shouldn't have been firing or shooting a gun. And I shot up 14 of our guys. And after that, uh, every night after that, when i closed close my eyes, if I wasn't drunk just enough, you know, if I didn't pass out, they'd come through my room. You know, and visit, <laughs> and say how come? And I used to hear the radio operator screaming into the into his mic. You know that you're firing into the friendlies. You're firing into the friendlies. And I'd hear voices all the time. You know, I didn't know how I was ever going to get rid of that stuff. Another time, I, I got shot down, and, and uh, everybody died. He took me. So my pilot lived for a little while, and he had a fifty cow in his chest, and I put my hand over his mouth because the enemy was looking for us, and, uh, and he quit breathing. And I took that guilt, and I took the shame, you know, and it, it didn't work for me. So he'd visit me at night. <laughs> I had to get drunk, you know. I couldn't live with all that stuff that I already did. And I was only about 21 years old, 22 years old, you know, didn't know how to do all that stuff. Um, After Vietnam shut down and all that stuff, I got back to the States and uh, I wasn't really a real good Marine in the States or in-country kind of, you know, I didn't like regimentation. I didn't like authority, I still don't, you know, I have a hard time with it, but I work on it a lot, you know. But I didn't like people telling me what to do all the time and all that stuff. In the... I had a real illustrious career. I'm in a, you know, I got promoted 28 times, you know. I got demoted 24 times. <laughs> I was in the Marine Corps nine and a half years and I got a general discharge out. On my last discharge, and it was from apathy. And I asked them what that meant, and they said, "You just don't care." And I couldn't argue with them, because I didn't. You know, I got out. I came home up to Fremont. I was home for a couple of weeks, and they suggested that I go over to Palo Alto. <laughs> to do some psychiatric testing, and I went over there, and they introduced me to better living through, through electricity, so I'm not going to touch this thing, <laughs> you <know. laughs> that did real good, you know, that jacked me out for about three days, You <laughs> just not know what's going on, you know, but it didn't work, it didn't work. I ran away from there, you know, I wasn't going to let him cheat me. I cut out. And I went to work for my dad again, you know, and uh, my dad was sort of an enabler, but he was one of them real hard-liner guys, you know, um, said I could work there as long as I didn't get drunk. <laughs> so I only drank on my day off, and you know, I made sure I only had one day off, <laughs> you know. If I called in, six, he'd come over to my house and make sure what was wrong. You <laughs> know, it was fun, you know. I couldn't really get any good over on him, you know. Then he got some parties, and I was managing the parties and cutting his arm and working at the station, so I didn't have any days off, because he wanted to make sure nothing was going to happen. He was trying to control me in that way, and it just wasn't working, you know. Um, I forgot to tell you that I got married before I went to Vietnam. I always forget to talk about when I got married. (laughs) All time I talked, I forgot to talk about my present (laughs) wife. But I got married just before I went to Vietnam. She proposed to me. She said, Honey, I'm pregnant. I come back after my first eighteen month tour, and uh, things weren't going along real well. You know, we went to uh, a Halloween party, and I found her in bed with another guy. And I threw him out a window, and I punched her in the face, and I just started walking. You know, um, it took her another month to kick me out of the house. <laughs> you know, I was sort of. I thought a bad relationship was better than no relationship, and we just didn't have one, you know. I waited my overseas control date and went back overseas. That's how come I went for, you know, I was there for three years. Um, I was running away. I was able to do geographicals in the service real easy, you know. After I got out of the service and started working for my dad, you know I got married uh, after I got back from Vietnam the second time I got remarried um, but before that i you know I met my wife that I have now, and we had a little daughter, and uh we were gonna get married you know they were all waiting at the wedding, you know the wedding was all set, they were at the chapel or at the church and uh Everybody was there except me. (laughs) I was across the street having a couple hooks to get up some courage, you know. And then I said, heck with it, I'm not going to do it. And I turned away and didn't look back, you know. And that was hard. There was another face that used to come and bother me at night, you know. He and my dad had a pretty good relationship at work. You know, after I was there a year, I figured it was time for him to retire. So I threw a retirement party for him. It was a surprise. <laughs> he didn't know anything about it. I invited everybody from all the service clubs that he belonged to, everybody that he ever knew. And there was like 150 people there, you know, and uh, he was retired. <laughs> so I got to run the show, you know. I wasn't really capable of doing it, but I wanted to. My drinking, I was trying to control it, in, you know. I was trying to really work at not drinking like I used to drink. I also got involved in the church at that time. You know, I went on a marriage encounter weekend with my second wife. <laughs> uh, or what's your name, number two? <laughs> you know, and we got real involved in that. You know, and uh, that's when I first heard that God doesn't make junk. That's when I first started feeling like there might be some kind of chance. You know And people share things like they share here, but they don't share about drinking, They don't share about you know they share about feelings a lot, but I, I never shared to them about how I really felt, because if I told them how I really felt, they'd ask me to leave. You know If I told them what i really done, they'd ask me to leave. Um, it just wasn't really cool. Um, we got into the church and we were doing a marriage prep class, a marriage prep class, you know. And all of a sudden, we were, we had about six couples at our house, and we were sharing about relationships and troubles in relationships. And a light bulb went off. I said, "You know, every time you were in trouble, you were drunk, and I never knew that before." I never figured that out before, but every time I was in trouble, I was drunk, you know. So I decided to quit drinking. And I went 90 days without a drink. At the end of 30 days, I went to the sporting goods store and bought a gun, you know. The next 60 days, I played with the bullets, you know, I drilled them out, put mercury in them, followed them down, made them nice, you know. My problem wasn't alcohol. My problem is trying to live without taking a drink, you know, trying to live out here without drinking. I found out that alcohol was my coping skill, you know, and I just couldn't cope. The day I came to my first meeting, you know, the afternoon, it was Valentine's Day around 1979 or 78, I'm not really sure which, (laughs) you know. I was in my garage and I'm yelling at God saying it's not getting any better and I just don't understand. You know, and I got a gun in my ear and I'm getting ready to pull the trigger. What saved me was my dog got out and went running out the garage. (laughs) The reason the dog got out was because I couldn't get any flowers and I couldn't buy any candy so I was going to fix up some stuff around the house. So we had a couple doors that needed to get repaired, and I ended up ripping them apart. You know? it's real easy at 250 pounds to walk through a door, (laughs) you know, and I did that. And that's how my dog got out. So I go chasing my dog, because the dog's the only thing I really identify with in my whole life that loves me unconditionally. You know, I can kick him, I can hit him, I can slap him. And I could pat my leg and say, come here. And he comes there and he looks me in the face. You know. That's what I know about love at that time. So I go chasing him down the street trying to get him back. But I still got my gun in my hand. And my neighbor is a cop. <laughs> and he was coming home for lunch. It was about, four, you know, he had the after, mid-shift, I guess. And he was, it was about four o'clock, you know, and. And it was a cul-de-sac, and there was about ten kids playing down at the end of the cul-de-sac, and he didn't think that was real cool. You know, he thought I was losing it. <laughs> I, you know, I just told him I was just trying to get my dog. <laughs> I didn't tell him I was going to try to shoot myself, but he thought I was going to shoot the dog, and I didn't tell him any difference. because that was better than telling him I was going to kill myself. You know? At that moment there, I found incomprehensible demoralization. I'm laying out in the middle of the street, spread eagle, with his gun in my ear. You know? And I changed my mind real quick about suicide. (laughs) I wanted to live right then. (laughs) You know, I wanted to do it, not him. (laughs) You know? And all the kids are there. And my kids are there. And all that I could hear the kids saying,
1: look at your dad,
0: you know, and I felt lower than the pavement, you know. He took my gun away and we went into his house and we talked for a while. And then he let me go home. And when I went home, old oh, Western name number two called up some people from AA that she knew. And they kept, you know, they were there when I got home. And they said, I want you to go to an AA meeting with me. I said, I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 90 days. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Shit, I was fine then, you know? And, you know, they did that marriage prep class with us, too, and we used to share a lot, and they said, you trust me? I go, yeah, I do. And they go, you love me? And I, oh, I, I love the guy, you know, as much as I could then. And he goes. I want you to just go as a visitor, or as a friend, or whatever. I just want you to go. So I went. I got there, you know, and the tables were in a horseshoe, a big horseshoe. And we got there early, and I'm trying to figure things out, you know. I'm always one of them guys that try to analyze things. So I figure they put the alcoholics in the middle and yell at them. <laughs> So I sat up front by the corner over here. <laughs> Before I went to the meeting, you know, I, I polished my Cadillac. <laughs> I put on my $300 suit. I got down in there and I sat down in one of the chairs and ripped my pants. <laughs> and I had a resentment against AA from the start. <laughs> you know. But I stayed there for seven days. I went to meetings for seven days. And they talked about anonymity, you know, and I had a, I had a gas station, a couple of gas stations, so I had a, a mobile shirt on that had Dave on it, you know, so I'd get out into the parking lot and I'd take my shirt off, you know, and just go in with a t-shirt, and then say, I'm Dave, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I don't know how you thought but that's sort of weird to me today, <laughs> you know? And I stayed there for seven days, and I tried to figure out what the secret was. And they always talked about the steps. And they had these little place cards with the steps on them. So I took that home, you know. Every night I took that home. But at the end of seven days, I figured, shit, I don't need to go to a meeting. I can just change the words on here, where it says we, I can put me. And where it says us, I can put myself. You know, and all that stuff, and make it all singular instead of plural. And I tried that, you know. And I drank again. You know, probably about two months, I guess, I don't know. All that time sort of goes, it's real vague, you know. Time sort of goes by real quick. But I remember thinking, when I was back, you know, drinking again, I remember thinking, when was the last time you felt better, and what were you doing?" And I had to tell myself I was going to them goddamn AA meetings, <laughs> and I hated that. <laughs> but I went back, and I didn't go back to the same fellowship I went to to start with, though, because I figured i let them guys down, and they couldn't help me anymore, so I went to another fellowship. And over there they had this sign above the door that said, when all else fails, follow directions. <laughs> you know? And they had some of the mean guys from AA in there, you know? Them guys with 12 and 15 years, you know? The ones that look right through me and tell me that I was here for a short time because I wasn't getting honest and I wasn't be, you know, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. I went to meetings and I shared around the table like everybody else did. They told me to buy a big book, I bought one. They told me to get some phone numbers, I got some. They told me to get a sponsor, I got one. And I got drunk. I came back in. They pointed to that same sign again, it said when all those sales follow directions. And this Irish guy got in my face. you know. Real mean guy, I <laughs> Said, I know you got a big book. Did you ever read it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd always hang my head down at those times, you know. Did <laughs> I know you got phone numbers. Did you ever call anybody? And I said, No. Said, I know you asked a guy to be your sponsor. Did you ever talk to him? I said, No. And then when you say something that really hurt, you didn't want to stay sober too bad, did you? God, and that sort of pierced through my heart, you know. I sort of, you know, I was at that point where I really wanted to want to have it, <laughs> you know. I really wanted it, but I didn't really understand what it was, and I didn't know how to get it. I didn't know how to let go. Surrender, Larry. Then was a dirty word. You know, I didn't know I was already on the enemy's side. <laughs> and I needed to surrender to a power greater than myself. You know. I stuck around for ten more months. Going to meetings, reading the book a little bit, calling my sponsor every once in a while, doing stuff. We were marginal. You know. And I wanted to run away from home. And I couldn't tell anybody that. And I got drunk again. You know. What I did with that drunk is I went up to the bar that was up by our house. And my kids were going to the Catholic school that was right across the street from the bar. And I waved bye-bye to them through the barroom window. With no intentions of ever coming back home. And I didn't know where I was going. You know? Started walking down the street and the, the priest was out there watering his grass and we've become pretty good friends, you know. And uh, he said, Hi, Dave. <laughs> and I flipped him off. <laughs> Priests don't like it when you flip them off. he came come across the street and took me into his office and said, let's have a talk. <laughs> you know, and I really wasn't in any... You know, I didn't want to talk. You know, but I was... You could lead me anywhere by then. You know, and I just... I'll go talk to this guy to get him off my back. And then I'll go you what I need to do. But, you know, he reminded me of when I felt better... And what I was doing, because I forgot. He told me, "You know, you were doing a lot better when you were going to AA. And since you don't have any place else to go, why don't you try that just one more time?" You know, that was my last bad day in sobriety, or <laughs> in, in in drunkenness. You know, that was March 9, nineteen eighty-two. That was my last drunk. I went to a meeting. You know, and I heard things a little different. You know, there's still the same guys there pointing to that dumb sign when all those failed solid directions. And the guys were still telling me you didn't want to stay sober too bad. You know. And they still I still felt like they were looking right through me. But I started going in, I started listening different. I started reading the big book a paragraph at a time, just a paragraph a day. I started calling my sponsor once a day, and that was hard to do, you know, for me. I'd call him up and said, Hi, this is Dave, I'm just checking in, bye. I was always afraid somebody was going to yell at me, you know. I was always afraid somebody was going to put me in my place. I just kept coming back, you know. They didn't tell me about nothing about 90 meetings in 90 days. They told me if I drank every day, go to a meeting every day. You know. And I did that. And I did the, read the book and I called other people and then he'd get, you know, I got around three months and he told me to start shaking newcomers' hands when they came in the door. You know. And I started doing that. And I wasn't sure what was really happening in my life, you know, but things were changing. It was a whole different kind of AA then. You know, I guess I let go then, looking back on it. I know that I had to concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And I finally did that. My life's a mess. You know, my life's unmanageable. Going into step two. Step two was easy for me to do because I could just look around the room and see that it was working for you guys. And if it was going to work for you guys, it was going to work for me. You know, because there was another friend of mine there that was going in and out the same time I was, you know. seemed like when I was in... He was out, and when I was out, he was in. And he stayed in. (laughs) You know? But I saw that it worked with you guys. So why wouldn't it work for me? I just had to try. And I had a real hard time with step three. Real hard time with step three. I thought I'm supposed to turn my will and life over to God immediately wholeheartedly, all at once. That's it. <laughs> you know? Then I found out that I just got to be willing to had that willingness and the door opens and God comes into my heart. You know? What my sponsor really told me about step three, he said, made a decision to turn your will and life over to care of AA as you understand it. <laughs> You know, he said, "Do the fourth step, <laughs> get into action," and he gave me a deadline. You know, I hated that guy for doing that. I wanted to procrastinate like everybody else did, <laughs> You know, well, he hadn't done his yet. <laughs> <laughs> he haven't done theirs yet. <laughs> he goes, "You got two weeks," and I did the best job I could then. You know, and I talked about that stuff, you know, I talked about life in Vietnam. I talked about killing those guys and like, you know, another little trick I did over while I was overseas in Japan on August 8th. I don't know. They have a big ceremony over there in Hiroshima Park. It's a big memorial. just when we dropped the A-bomb on them. And it was 1976 and I'm out behind this big, big statue monument deal and I'm cranking up this siren to, uh, yelling air raid, air raid. <laughs> you know? It's another thing I had to write down. It sounded like a really great idea at midnight the night before that. <laughs> you know? It really did. But I know today that that's <laughs> sick you know. That was part of my sick behavior. I didn't like telling people about me and things that I did wrong, you know. I didn't like telling them about ripping my old man off for 25 grand, you know, and putting them out of business altogether, you know. It got to where I didn't have a job there either. <laughs> I embezzled it. I hid it in inventory. And how I got caught was I was supposed to have a whole load of gas in two stations and there wasn't any and there wasn't no money in the bank. And he'd come down to do an inventory. And then I confessed. (laughs) That's how I always did it. If I'm getting close to getting caught, then I'll confess. But if I feel like I'm skating, I won't. You know, and I started stealing the money just like I started drinking, you know. I got into a $250 pyramid to start with. I didn't have the money in my pocket, so I took it out of the till. I thought I'd get it all back. I didn't win nothing. (laughs) But I didn't get caught. You know, that's a big thing in my life, you know. If I didn't get caught, I tried it again. I tried it again. I always tried it again. You know, I was a daily drinker I drank every day I passed out at night I woke up tried to choke a couple more down so I can go back to sleep that's how I did it you know I shared my fifth step twice I did it once with the priest it was a real loving person in my life You know? And it felt really great to do that. But he died about a year after that. You know? And I felt like I had to do it with somebody else. I felt like somebody living had to know what was going what I did. So I did it with my sponsor. (laughs) The big deal with that was he shared his back with me. And the difference in the two Was like a thousand percent, you know. I'd never changed doing either one. But you know, it was really neat. I cried a lot. I didn't like what I had become. You know. One of the problems with me in early recovery was there was a lot of emotional pain, a lot of emotional distress. (laughs) Things weren't going well. You know, um, things like the lawnmower wouldn't start. <laughs> things like the window wouldn't shut. And I'd trip out over all that stuff. The car wouldn't start. The car'd have a flat tire. That was for immediate suicide right there. You know. Um, I got divorced from old oh, what's her name number two and I... And I met, you know, this is, I'm getting a little bit ahead, but, you know, steps six and seven for me were sort of um, difficult. You know, I looked at them as my defects of character, as on who I was and what I was. And I looked at the shortcomings as the action that I took when I was in that defect of character, the negative action so I tried not to do that and that's what I gave to God you know I found that I couldn't give anything to God except my feelings and emotions you know I got a divorce in that time and I tried to give my kids to God and uh, they were still down in Huntington Beach <laughs> they didn't go nowhere you know but I gave them my feelings of insecurity and fear and frustration You know. My divorce was probably the hardest thing that happened to me in sobriety. Emotionally. Um, it just didn't work, you know. She didn't like me sober. <laughs> I don't think she liked me when I was drunk either. That's, you know, we stuck around together too long, you know. But it was an 11-year marriage, you know. In six of those years, I was overseas. and the last five, I was home, and it didn't work out. And uh, she did things to me in that divorce that really hurt me emotionally. She told the judge or told the mediator that I molested my kids so she could get custody of the, of uh, my kids. And I'm feeling real guilty. Like, how many's going to believe her? <laughs> and who's nobody's going to believe me? You know, I'm an alcoholic. Nobody's ever going to believe me. I have nothing to stand on, you know. So for a long time, I had real hard visitation. It was always I could never see them by themselves. Somebody else had to be there, either my parents or, oh, what's your name, number two, (laughs) you know. But I got through that because I came to a lot of meetings, and I shared a lot what was going on with me at the time. You know, I shared about them fears. I shared about how hurt I was. I shared about... The insecurities. I shared about the shame. I shared about being a failure again. Because I really felt like a failure. You know? I shared about feeling like I lost my higher power when I got divorced. And I was the one that shut them off. But I shared about that. And people supported me. You know? That's what the group's all about. <coughs> somebody has always taken time out for me when I needed it. Always has. As long as I asked for it. <coughs> if nobody needed, n- knew that I needed the talk, nobody did anything. But if I ever asked for, t- you know, for some time, somebody always gave it to me. I got into my 8 step list, <coughs> and I listed them people that I killed. And I listed, uh, I had two prisoners that I murdered, too, while I was over there, that I didn't tell them about. You know, we were transporting them somewhere, and uh, some friends got killed a couple days before that, and I just took it out on them, and I just shot them while they were handcuffed. And I was real cold about that, and that's the kind of person I was. I listed them guys on the list. You know, I listed um, my wife now that I'm married to on the list, because I knew she had my baby. We went through paternity suits for a long time, and I kept denying them. <coughs> I listed my daughter on the list that I had never seen for 10 years, that I never even met. And then it got time to make start making amends. And that's a real important part of this program for me. You know, I, had, I, I got back to work. I had a job where I could pay my dad $1,000 a month. And I did that for 25 months and I paid him off. I wrote Sharon a letter, and I wrote my daughter a letter, and I put it into her letter to see if she wanted to give it to my daughter. And I told her about me a little bit, you know, that I was an alcoholic. And, uh, I probably made a lot of excuses in there, but I was trying the best that I could to make amends, you know. And she gave it to my daughter, and then me and my daughter started writing back and forth. And that was a real neat deal, you know. Didn't come the time when I was supposed to go down and visit, <laughs> and I was scared to death. I was as scared as I was when I first got up here. <laughs> you know, But I met my daughter, and it was real uncomfortable at first. I kept on waiting for that. Or you did? <laughs> How come you never wrote? How come you never even acknowledged me? You know. And finally she said it, you know, she said, where you been? And I just cried. You know? Then she started to tickle me. <laughs> and I tickled her. And that's how our relationship started. You know? Then I'd go down to LA and visit them a couple times a month or once a month. And uh, I made a mess to her mom. You know, for not showing up at the wedding. She went through a lot of hell with her parents over that. You know? And uh, we started dating again. And four years ago, we got married, finally. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I got married sober. (laughs) I didn't get the question of honey. You know, I mean, I didn't get proposed to. It wasn't, honey, I'm pregnant, (laughs) you know? I proposed to her, and we got married, and it was one of them
1: AA weddings,
0: and it was neat. You know, it was really neat. I try to do a 10-step every day. I visualize the tenth step as having a dirty house and sweeping it up every day and having little piles. I do a lot of visualization in my mind. You know? And if I let it go too long, I got this great big mountain in there and it's harder to do. So I keep doing that. You know? Some days I, you know, I slack off. I'm not perfect. But I really try to do that. Because it's real important. I try to make amends when I'm wrong. You know? I found another thing too when I was making amends instead of saying I was sorry. Was better for me to say I was wrong. (laughs) It worked a lot better. People took that a lot better, you know. A couple years ago, I went down and I talked to old what's your name number two, and we talked for about three and a half hours, and I made amends, and I left feeling. Pretty good about that. You know? I have a little bit more visitation than I used to, sometimes. <laughs> you know? And that was all part of that tenth step for me. You know, the tenth step for me is clearing away the wreckage of my presence. Because I have a lot of wreckage of the present. Because I'm still living. And that counts. You know? It counts. On prayer and meditation for me, I have... I've never really had a hard time since I got in here after the first year with prayer and meditation. You know? I... I learned real early on in the program, after I got in here the last time, they drugged me off to a retreat with about six months sober. <laughs> up in the Los Gatos Hills. And we did a lot of that stuff up there, you know, we did a lot of sharing back and forth. And retreats have been a major part of my sobriety, a major part of my inner peace. And uh, there was this guy from Fresno that was doing this retreat last year, and he was talking about a a journey from fear to faith. And it really made a lot of sense. You know, I have to trust God, but I'm still going to have some fear, and I'm still going to have some faith, and I'm going to be in between all the time. You know? Meditation. I do meditations in different ways. Some of them. Sometimes I meditate at a meeting, or I try to listen with my heart instead of with my head and hear what people are really sharing. Sometimes I do visualizations, sometimes I listen to music, there's all different kinds of meditations for me that I do, and it depends on what kind of spot I'm in on, what kind of meditation I'm going to do. And it's really important for me. because. Things haven't been going real good lately, you know. The last two years I've been having convulsions, seizures, grand mal seizures. About three a week, sometimes it gets up to one a day. About seven months ago they found a brain tumor. I didn't know how to handle that except for what you taught me. Instead of taking a drink, use my new coping skill. And the coping skill was the steps. And I was powerless over alcohol and my seizures and the tumor and it makes my life unmanageable. And I went right down through the steps on all of that. I haven't been working in two years. I I had a little job for about six months that was part-time, but really, you know, I haven't worked a whole lot. But what I have been able to do is I've been able to devote a lot of time to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been available a lot for people that are trying to recover. I've been involved in H&I. I'm on the answering service. I chair a couple meetings the GSR, you know, maybe I do things too much, and I'm still compulsive, but I have a lot of power, you know, and I need to feel useful, and I sponsor a couple guys, and the phones always ringing at home, and there's always people coming in and out of the house, and I found out why, you know, because I can't be lonely. People come in there to help me as much as I try to help them. It's always been a two-way street. I found out that I take out I take time out for them like somebody used to take time out for me. And it really works. And that's when the program really started kicking off for me is when I started really getting into the 12-step work. And I did that really early on, but... It's really helped me out this last couple of years immensely. One of the things I hated the most about these seizures is not driving. Because <laughs> I used to drive all over the place. I put 2,000 miles on my car a month just for meetings. <laughs> you know? And I couldn't drive. And my wife had taken me to the hospital. <laughs> and I just couldn't handle it. I'd be yelling and screaming at her (laughs) that she couldn't drive right, watch out for this, all this kind of stuff. Instead of telling her that I really miss driving. And it hurts, you know. We got through that. For a long time, she made me sit in the back seat. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I sat in the back seat because that's where I needed to be. You know, but we got through that. We've gotten, I've gotten through every little obstacle in sobriety that's happened so far. You know, I found out that things are not crises anymore. I don't have crises in my life. I have events. Some of them are minor. Most of them are minor. A couple of them are major, but they're just events. There's I mean, nothing I have to really go crazy on. You know, I haven't gone crazy in a long time. And I used to. And I'm the kind of guy who used to punch holes through walls, and beat up my wives, and beat up my kids, you know, kick my car because <laughs> it quit running. <clears throat> I did that once when we were going to a Monterey conference. <laughs> It quit in Santa Cruz and I went around kicking it. (laughs) And then I called up a tow truck and then I called up another guy that was at the conference and we went to the conference and my car went home, (laughs) you know. I'm not really stable all the time, but I'm trying the best I can today and that's a big deal in my life. Sobriety to me and serenity to me today means a lot more than it did Seven years ago, sobriety seven years ago meant going twelve hours without a drink. <laughs> sobriety today means that peace of heart, you know, that loving compassion, that love and service for somebody else, that care and compa- you know, care and concern, being willing to help somebody no matter who they are, you know. I go on a lot of 12-step calls. The guys I sponsor, I drive them crazy because I call them up to, we're going. (laughs) You know. But I still get where I need to go. I still get to help people. And it's great. You know. I was real nervous about being here today. Really was. But today I feel, right now I feel real content and peaceful. You know, I just got vulnerable with you guys and let you know who I am. And that's what I'm supposed to do. Because that's what this program's is about. It's sharing one human being to another. And I want to thank you very much. I want to thank the committee again for asking me to come up here. I want to thank you for calling on me. And I thought, weren't those bagpipes great? <laughs> That was neat. Gave <laughs> me a couple extra minutes of terror, though. <laughs> but thank you for letting me share.